Thank you. Turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. Continuing a summer series on the parables of Jesus, and this morning it's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, From Matthew chapter 18, I'll be reading verses 21 through 35. And let us give, again, uh, careful hearing to the reading of this portion of God's word. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger. Handed him over to the torturers. Until he should repay all that was owed him. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother. From your heart. Again that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, again, we we pause to ask for your help before we begin to consider, talk about, teach, preach your word. Because we know we need your help. We want to understand it aright. I want to proclaim it properly. I want to apply it as it ought to be applied. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our guard, our guide, and our protector to keep us in the path of truth. And to protect us from any error. And our deliberations over your word this morning would be accurate and right and proper and true. And what we take from it would be what you give us from your Holy Spirit and his ministry in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus had a special relationship with his disciples, with the twelve in particular. 
Now, he taught the multitudes. He spent time with sinners. He reached out to the, to the lost. He had a broad ministry that reached lots of people. But he invested most of his time in the lives of the twelve. And toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he withdrew more and more from the multitudes and the crowds and spent less time with them, more time with the disciples. You see, he knew that uh, they would be given the responsibility to carry on the work of the gospel after his crucifixion. He knew they would be the ones God would use to build, started to build a church, and that they would be the ones who would really carry the good news of the gospel uh, to all the nations. If you have a red-letter edition of the New Testament like I do, you find that toward the end of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, there's lots of red. It's because it is giving to us all the instruction and the teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples right before his death. And that's where we find this parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Now, as we study these parables, we're going through the same pattern every Lord's Day. We're looking first at the context in which the parable is found, we're looking at the story that the parable tells, and then we're looking at the meaning and the application of the parable to our hearts and to our lives. So first this morning, what's the context here of this parable? It is found in Matthew 18. That ought to ring a bell to some of you, especially those of you who are in Sunday school this morning, as Gary James uh, was teaching upon what the relationship of the church and the life of a believer and began to talk about church discipline. Matthew 18 is one of the key passages that uh, teach us about how the church is to be involved in the process of discipline. That is how we deal with one another when we have fallen into sin. And the steps of uh, church discipline are given, beginning with verse 15. And that's where Gary started this morning in Sunday school with the adults. Uh, The first step is to go and confront your brother. If you know that someone has committed a sin, whether it be against you or a sin uh, in public that needs to be confronted, you're supposed to go confront that brother in private. If he listens and repents... You've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, the second step is to take someone or some others with you as other witnesses to bring more power to bear upon this person with a desire to bring them to repentance. If the person still does not listen, then to be brought to the church. Our context will be to the leadership of the church bring even greater ecclesiastical influence upon this person with the goal of bringing them to the point of repentance. They still don't listen. They still don't repent. Then discipline is to be enacted, even to the point of cutting the person off from the fellowship of the church. Serious business, isn't it? This whole matter of church discipline, as Gary said, is not very popular in the church today. The Bible clearly outlines ways that we are to deal with erring brothers and sisters. The goal really is not to estrange them, to cut them off. The goal is always to bring them back, to seek to bring them to the point of repentance and renewed fellowship. Well, it was right after that instruction that Peter asked Jesus a question. 
And the question was about forgiveness. Now, Peter, of course, was the inquisitive one of the twelve. Well, he was more than that. He was impetuous and he was bold. And you know how Peter was. Sometimes he would ask a question before he really thought about what he was asking. Sometimes he would say something before he really thought about what he was saying. And so Peter used this opportunity when Jesus was talking about how to deal with a brother who's fallen into sin, in particular a brother who may have sinned against you. He said in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, I'm, see, Peter wants to know the limits. He wants to know how, what his obligation is. How many times have I got to forgive this guy? who keeps sinning against me. And I'm sure he thought he was being generous when he proposed the number seven. You see, uh, the Jewish religious leaders uh, cut it off at three. That's the only obligation you had is to forgive a person three times. It was a learned rabbi, rabbi, rabbi who said, you can tell where my mind is, it's not a rabbi, it's a, <laughs> it's a rabbi. A rabbi... A learned rabbi said, if your brother sins against you once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. A fourth time, you don't have to forgive him. And so Peter was probably expecting praise from Jesus for his good heart. But he didn't get praise, did he? In fact, he received a rebuke Essentially, Jesus said no. What Jesus said in verse 22 was, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, Jesus was not trying to get Peter to play a numbers game with him. He was not even setting 490 as the outer limit of the times that you were to forgive your brother when he sinned against you. Jesus' point here is that there is no limit that the numbers of times you are to forgive your brother or your sister when they sin against you is an infinite number. And of course, there is good reason for that. And that's because that is the way God forgives us. Aren't you glad God doesn't limit the number of times that He forgives you? Aren't you glad He isn't like Peter? Wanting to stop at seven times. Aren't you even glad he doesn't stop at 70 times seven? You see, God doesn't have his little book out counting up the numbers of times you've sinned and you've come back and asked for forgiveness. And when you reach a certain number, he says, Ah, you're over the limit. Don't you even worry about coming to ask me for forgiveness any longer. You see, God doesn't operate that way. God's mercy and God's grace is abundant. It's overflowing. And over and over again, God promises that He will forgive. What does John tell us in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess, He will forgive. And there's no limitation placed upon it. Well, to make that perfectly clear to Peter, Not just that that's the way God forgives us, but that it's the way He should forgive others and we should forgive others. Jesus told this parable. 
of the unmerciful servant. That's the setting, the context. Second, we need to look at the parable itself. What is this earthly story Jesus tells here to teach us a heavenly or spiritual lesson? Well, the parable is simple, isn't it? Most parables are. It's about a king. A king who uh, decided to settle accounts with his slaves or his servants. We're not sure exactly how it came to be in this situation, but apparently he had been generous to his servants. He had either given them cash advances, loaned them money, but he realized that it was time to settle these accounts and have them pay him back. Now, one of the servants that was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the largest currency, the largest amount of currency. 10,000 was the highest Greek numeral. And what Jesus is saying here is that this servant owed this Lord, this king, amount of money he could never, ever hope to repay. In our current dollars, it would be like someone owing billions, or our country owing, what, trillions of dollars. It's an in, for us an infinite amount, amount that simply could not ever be repaid. And the point is not how this man got in this situation. The point is simply what, that he was in this situation. And here he is called to settle this account with the king. Now you can probably understand some of his feelings, his fear and trepidation as he was brought before the king to try to settle this account that he knew he had no way to repay. And it became clear to the king before long that there was no way he could repay it. And the only thing the king knew to do was to sell him. To sell the servant. To sell his wife. To sell his children. To sell everything that he owned. To get just a little bit of repayment for what he owed him. Well, when the servant heard what the king was going to do, you can imagine how he felt. And he was filled with remorse, and so he fell on his face before the king, and he begged him, he pleaded with him, saying, Just be patient with me, and I'll repay you the whole debt. Now, the king knew, it didn't matter how patient he was with him, he would never be able to repay it. But somehow, apparently, the king was touched by his display of remorse. And the king did the unthinkable. He had mercy on him, he felt compassion for him, and he forgave him the whole debt. Think of it. What a blessing that was to this man. Think of yourself. Say you owed the bank an amount of money that you simply could not repay. Your financial fortunes had changed. You're in dire straits. You have a loan. You can't repay it. And then you get a message from the bank saying, look, we've just decided to write it off. And we're going to set you free from that obligation. What joy you would feel, huh? What a blessing that would be. Well, that's where this man was. 
you would think. But apparently right after he received this blessing from the king, he was forgiven this enormous, unpayable debt. He went out in the street and found a fellow servant who owed him some money. Now there's two things about that. One is, it's I think pretty clear in the text that he on purpose went and found this person. It wasn't like they just crossed in the street. It says in verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves. That's one thing. The other thing is the amount he owed was much, 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 much smaller than what he had just been forgiven. But the man who owed him the money couldn't repay either. And so he did the same thing this servant had done to the king. He he prostrated himself and begged, pleaded for mercy, saying, just be patient with me and I'll repay you the whole thing. But the servant was not willing to be patient or to forgive him the debt. Instead, he began to choke him and pleaded with him for to give it back. And when he couldn't, he had the authorities come, arrest him, and had him thrown into prison. Well, there were some others who saw what had happened. Others who knew what the king had just done for him. Who knew that the king had just forgiven him this enormous debt and yet he had demanded a smaller repayment from a fellow servant. And so they went back to the king and told him what had happened. And so the king called the servant back in and this time he was unhappy. And he said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. I forgave you all that debt simply because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy toward your fellow servant just as I had mercy toward you? Then the text says that in his anger the king had that servant thrown not just in prison, but he was handed over to the torturers until he should repay the whole thing. Now, it was impossible for him to repay the whole thing. So you know what happened. He was being sentenced, essentially, to death. Well, that's the context of the story. That's the story. Now, what about its meaning or its application? What is the spiritual lesson Jesus is teaching us here? The comparison, of course, is clear, isn't it? The comparison is between this enormous debt the servant owed the king and the enormous debt that you and I owe to God. In the parable, the king is God and the servant is you and me. And it pictures the enormous spiritual debt of sin that you and I owe to God. 
And now we owe a debt that we can in no way ever even hope to repay. Our situation before God is just as hopeless and just as helpless as that servant who was brought before the king to settle this enormous debt. And just like him, we are completely dependent upon the mercy of God to forgive us this debt. And just as he begged for mercy, that's our only hope as well. That's the only way, the only way that you and I can ever hope that this debt can be repaid. But wonder of wonders, that's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus accounted for our debt. God forgives our debt. He in his mercy says, you don't owe it any longer. Your debt is blotted away. What you owed me before, you owe me no longer. And you see, that's how God responds to us, isn't it, in our sin. The only difference is that in the case of the servant, his debt was blotted out, just dismissed. What you need to understand is in the case of our debt to God, it wasn't just written off the record. It was repaid. God doesn't just strike our debt off as an unpayable debt. He required that it be paid. And that's where the death of Jesus comes in. We sang earlier about justice and mercy being combined. And God does not negate his justice in showing us mercy because God required that our debt be paid in full and his son paid it. There is a great old hymn that says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it. White as snow. And you see, that is the the message of the gospel, isn't it? We were just as helpless, just as hopeless, just as enormously in debt as a servant. And yet God comes to us and says, Your debt is paid. You owe it to me no longer. And the reality is that our debt was transferred to somebody else to God's son and he paid it for us so one of the great things this parable teaches is the wonder of God's grace and God's mercy don't begin to add up your sins folks because you'll run out of paper But when you begin to think of how many times you've erred in sin and thought and word and deed, you know, the evangelism explosion illustration of the gospel uses the illustration of three sins a day. Just think if you just sinned three times a day. You think you're a pretty good person, right? Just three sins a day? 
I wish I could limit myself to three sins a day. Three sins a day. All right, I'm terrible at math here, but you get the <laughs> but you get the idea. Twenty-one sins a week. I can't multiply fifty times twenty-one on my feet, but you get the idea. I am almost sixty years old. Multiply that out, folks. It's a lot of sins, isn't it? That's just three a day. And yet they've all been washed away. My debt has been paid. Your debt has been paid. Every sin has been blotted out. It shows us the mercy and the grace of God toward us in Christ. But it doesn't stop there. You see, forgiveness is not just on the vertical level. It is to be transcended to the horizontal level. Got it? That's where Peter asked his question, wasn't it? Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The question was asked on the horizontal level. But how did Jesus answer it? He answered on the vertical level. You see, the way that we forgive each other is determined by the way that God forgives us. Jesus says, you be merciful just as God is merciful. And that's what the king told his servant, wasn't it? Verse 33. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy You see, there's a direct connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. In real simple biblical terms, if you aren't willing to forgive someone else what they've done against you, you need to ask if you've really been forgiven yourself. If you aren't willing to show mercy to an erring brother or sister, someone who's even sinned against you personally, you need to ask if you really have experienced the mercy of God yourself. Because the more we understand the fullness of God's forgiving grace toward us, the more freely we're going to be able to show His forgiving grace to each other. And that really is the key of this parable. But isn't that an area where many of us struggle? It is so hard often to forgive. And so much harder to forget. Isn't that true? We're all inclined, aren't we, to remember what someone has done or said, to hold grudges, even to be bitter against someone because of what they have done or said to us. Indeed, it is, however, one of the clearest evidences of the powerful of power of the gospel in our lives that we're able to forgive one another. It doesn't mean that we 
are saved by forgiving each other. But we show we are saved in the way that we forgive one another. And it impacts almost every area of your life. Lots of marital problems come because of an unwillingness by one or both spouses to forgive. To forgive in the same way God has forgiven them. Church conflicts quite often happen because of someone's unwillingness to forgive someone of something they said or something they did. Look, you peel away the covering in lots of churches and you're going to find long-standing, deep-seated, hard feelings because somebody has held on to something for years and they're unwilling to let it go. Unwilling to forgive. Unwilling to show the mercy that God has shown to them. But what a tremendous blessing to realize that God forgives us freely, unreservedly, time and time again. And what a tremendous opportunity to show that same kind of mercy toward each other, to forgive each other what is said or done amiss. And what a witness that is to a watching world. It's one of the differences, ways we show the differences of the gospel is the way in which we forgive one another in the way God has forgiven us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray for grace for each one of us to be able to forgive as you've forgiven us. Father, for harboring bitterness or resentment or holding a grudge against someone in our family or in our church or in our community, in our workplace, I pray that you would let us, enable us to let that go today, to forgive as we've been forgiven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.